Is there a campaign on behalf of folks within your organization to target the rights of LGBTQ people? There's a campaign on behalf of Alliance Defending Freedom to protect free speech for everyone. It's the result of a long game from a right wing that recognizes that they have lost the culture wars. So instead, they say, fine, we can't win at the ballot box, so here's how we're going to enact ultra-conservative policies. The court. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Ryan Yonk to discuss three major Supreme Court case rulings. The Harvard Affirmative Action case, the Biden Student Loan Forgiveness Program, and the 303 Creative case about free speech and its interaction with anti-discrimination law. We sometimes think that the court is making definitive, permanent decisions. Roe versus Wade, all those things, all show us that those decisions, as permanent as the court may claim them to be at any given moment, the dynamic nature of how things evolve leave open all of those things. The past cannot bind the future in any definitive way outside of the constitutional order. First, we began by dissecting the historic and significant ruling on affirmative action in the Harvard Affirmative Action case. Yeah, so the case was uh, fundamentally a question of can race be affirmatively used uh, in the admissions process at places that receive um, essentially government money through the form of student loans. This is how Harvard is implicated. North Carolina is a public school, obviously, so they would have been uh, natively involved. But it comes down to how much can you use race in the determination? And uh, Harvard in particular, had used a system that affirmatively looked at race specifically as part of their admissions program uh, in a program that's most traditionally been called affirmative action. We're, we've heard a lot about it since the 1970s. There's been a lot of case law on it. We ended up with a decision that I wouldn't call just straight up middle ground. Um, they went slightly farther than I expected, um, but they didn't go as far as some folks um, believed that they might because they left open some fairly wide doors uh, on at least two counts that I think uh, suggest that the court uh, um, is, isn't, isn't walking back the ability to use race at all, just how direct you can use race, how directly you can use race in the admissions process. Right. I can read you something here that sums it up well. I think um, this is Andrew Roman. He's a Canadian litigator or former litigator, and he wrote, if you thought the U.S. Supreme Court's abortion decision overturning Roe v. Wade was controversial, wait until you see the results of its June 29th decision on affirmative action in university student admissions. Um, he says the court explained how universities could continue to discriminate and do so lawfully. The effect of this somewhat inconsistent messaging can be interpreted by university administrators as you can keep on discriminating, just be more subtle about it. So that's kind of the uh, critique of the ruling. Uh, that, so I think he's wrong, number one. I don't think that was the intent or the practice of what the court did. Now, will universities attempt to use that? Uh, I suspect that part of his comment is correct. But what the court acknowledged in particular was that the direct use of race ran counter to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, explicitly banned, but that race is connected to a variety of other things that might, in fact, be relevant to the admissions, to pro admissions process that are not forbidden under the 14th 
14th Amendment. And that's the door the court left open, was that if universities could come up with a way that would allow them to get to the same sort of information they claimed they were getting. Because remember, all the affirmative action sort of justifications that we heard um, before the court in particular, were focused on this was a way to get to a diverse student body with multiple sort of perspectives represented, um, and race was the proxy they were using directly. And what the court said was, race is off the table. It's an immutable characteristic, so strict scrutiny applies. Uh, you cannot use it uh, directly in the admissions process as... Uh, as had been being done, but there may be relevance that comes from the ex life experience connected to race. And so universities, I expect, will start to craft a response to that. And in some ways, that, that's a fairly middle ground opinion. It sets a bright line about uh, the procedural side. You can't simply use race and create a point system or any of those sorts of things, all of which had been schemes that were used before. But you can um, identify ways in which you... Um, would like the student body to look that is not connected to race, that is more tied to things like life experience or adversity or those sorts of things. It just can't be explicitly based on race. So that, that I think, is a middle ground. And I suspect that is the influence of the Chief Justice. Uh, if you remember, that's who I talked about I th that I thought was the wild card uh, mm -hmm. in the affirmative action case. Uh, I wasn't particularly surprised that he was the author, um, partly because he could craft a decision like this um, that I think was an interesting one. The other door they left open was military academies. They explicitly have said that this ruling does not apply to U.S. military academies. They can continue to do to use race in their admissions process. And so we do end up with a bit of a middle ground happening here, but not quite as middle ground as I thought. I thought they would give us a new test, and instead what they did was say, Race is off the table if you're, you can redesign your admissions process to account for the things you claim you want, but you have to do it without including race. So uh, for the military side of things, do you, did they explain why they made that decision there? Um, a bit. Uh, it's, fairly, it's a fairly weak part of the, the decision. Um, fundamentally, it came to do with the, national, with the interest of the national government in maintaining a military and readiness all those sorts of things. Um, I would love to know what the back and forth was that led to the inclusion, the exclusion of the military academies. Um, I'm sure there will be people that will write epically long discussions about why they were excluded. We've seen some of this happen already online. Uh, people are pointing to it as a hypocritical part of the decision. Uh, I suspect something else is going on in the background because, again, uh, the Chief Justice goes out of his way, goes to great pains to say this is not meant, this, is, this should not be interpreted as eliminating all the possible effects of race from the admissions process, but just the direct use as a decision criteria. And when it comes to the overcoming adversity kind of clause, so basically you can write a letter and say, uh, this was my experience in the past, uh, this yeah. is what I've overcome, and that story can have to do with race, but I guess it can also have to do with other things, right? It could have to do with almost anything else. And that's really what the justices on the, in the majority seem to be trying to do, was to rebalance sort of the approach to say, these things may well matter. You may have an interest in um, diversifying your student body based on these things. But race as a characteristic under U.S. law is considered a protected class. And by its very nature, if you advantage one racial group over another, your heart, it's a zero-sum game in college admissions. There are, 
it's not a positive sum game. There are a limited number of slots, and those slots will be allocated. And so if you if you advantage one racial group over another, you're you're creating the harm to the other racial group. And fundamentally, that's where the decision rested. Okay, so I guess what the the uh, critiques of of this nuance a nuanced decision are saying is, well, uh, you could, let's say, write, I overcame adversity because X, Y, Z, this was my past, and this is the color of my skin, and this is how it negatively affected me, and then I overcame it. But you can also have somebody come in and not have race be part of their letter of overcoming adversity. And I guess it will become uh, subjective decisions based on kind of each university's decision and how much they want to apply it uh, to promote a certain, I guess, ethnic or racial student body. Yeah, so that may be that may well be how they to choose to act. <clears throat> if they do, if that's the path they go down, I think there'll be a severe jeopardy of another ruling. I mean, essentially, what this does is I think sets up that the litigation on this subject isn't over, because again, if right, if race is a direct sort of impact on the admissions decision, um, the court has set that outside the boundaries. Um, what they have said is race is uh, is a variable that matters, sort of speaking in sort of my with my econ hat on, but it can't be the variable that you actually make decisions based on. And so I suspect there will be litig- future litigation. I don't think this is the last word um, on the subject by any means. I suspect we'll see lots of pushing around the edges to try to figure out what exactly and how far does this ruling actually go. And how about people who are very much pro-affirmative action, maybe progressives or people further along on the left side of the political spectrum? Uh, what are they saying about this? Well, they, they view it as, I think, what it was, which was an end to race-based decision-making um, directly in higher education admissions. Essentially, it's a restatement of a long-standing principle of the 14th Amendment. Um, we've, we've flirted around the edges of this since the 1970s. As if folks want to sort of get the, the long history of affirmative action, uh, we, we did an episode on that. I'd send them to go watch that. But this has been coming for a long time. Um, it's not a surprise, I think, um, that we've ended up here, that we we see this get struck down over and over again. Because what the court had done previously was try to propose tests that weigh out the balance and do all those things. But what they did in this decision was set race as off the table and then um, said, if you're trying to get to imp- the information you claim you are, which is a diverse campus with with a plurality of perspectives, you can do that. You just can't use race as the direct thing that does it. Okay. Okay. So let's move on then to the next one on our list. So we have Biden versus Nebraska. So the Supreme Court strikes down Biden's student loan forgiveness program. This is from SCOTUS blog. So what happened there? Well, so this one again is uh, the big question actually in this case, um, I think, was whether or not the states had standing. Uh, And the court got to standing very quickly. So six states sued. Uh, There was a companion case of borrowers that sued. The court rejected that case as the as the litigants didn't have standing to bring the case at all. And so they dismissed it based on lack of standing. Um, In in the other case, the case that involved um, the six states, Uh, The court accepts the standing of the state of Missouri uh, because they had created a publicly chartered corporation to manage student loans uh, in the state. And that 
<clears throat> that corporation received income in the form of fees for managing the loans, uh, and this would thereby affect its revenues. And so they, the court determined um, that uh, that that's, that was sufficient standing to have brought the lawsuit. And I think that was really the one of the major questions that was before the court and the people were talking about. The decision itself is really fundamentally a political one. I mean, if you look at sort of where, how the history of this came about, these were rules promulgated by the Secretary of Education after legislative attempts to pass student loan forgiveness went nowhere because of the split Congress. Uh, it was a campaign promise that had been made by first candidate Biden and then President Biden. Uh, and he'd been he'd gotten a serious amount of political pushback from sort of the left wing of his party about why he hadn't taken action and identified a way in which they believed they could do so under the HEROES Act, which was passed to, to give um, the Secretary of Education flexibility to make some modifications in loans in times of national emergency. And um, they, the administration, decided that they would do, use that power, the power to modify or forgive, um, is essentially what the power is, um, to, to do wholesale student loan forgiveness. The court rejected that notion. In fact, one of the greatest lines is, um, to it comes about, they, they basically say, to interpret modify as being able to completely rewrite the statute is akin to saying that the French Revolution modified the French government, um, that it was allowable to do it. Um, yes, in that I read way. that. And so, yes. um, at the core, this is an administrative law case fundamentally. And um, folks have sort of lost track of that. They've claimed this is a political decision by the court. The court has, this court in particular, has viewed legislative uh, intent with high levels of importance alongside uh, being deeply skeptical of administrative agencies in the executive branch, assuming powers that can't be directly tied back to a legislative authorization. And so in that way, once the standing question was resolved, uh, it was pretty clear the, the path that this was going to go down. Ultimately, it came down to the fact, did the secretary have the authority to do this much modification all at once? The court said, Absolutely not. Right. Just to quote from Roberts, he said, the question here is not whether something should be done. It is who has the authority to do it. Correct. And ultimately, there is at least some hints, especially in the majority opinion, that they may that at least one or more of the justices uh, may view the student loan situation as potentially problematic. They just do not see the power as residing in the executive branch agencies to do a wholesale change. Now, had this been a targeted program focused specifically, for example, on first responders or those sorts of things, the program probably would have passed muster. There's a long history under the HEROES Act of them doing things like that, but it was the wholesale size and scope that they that they did that really put this off limits as an at an overreach of agency power. And can you explain a little bit the HEROES Act and when that came to pass? Yeah, so there there are two of them. The one that's currently active is the act that was passed in 2003. Uh, it was primarily passed in the wake of 9/11. Um, in the period where uh, there were 
lots of open questions about the economic situation, especially for those that were impacted directly. And so Congress granted the Secretary of Education authority to make modifications or to forgive loans for folks directly affected by national emergencies and those sorts of things. Um, incidentally, this is the power under which they suspended the student loan interest during the period of the pandemic. And that didn't mm -hmm. appear to be an issue in the case. And in fact, I, I would interpret that as within the realm of what the secretary can do because it's time limited to the emergency. It's pretty narrowly focused. It's not this, it's not a wholesale ending or elimination of the debt. But now again, that the emergency has ended, we, we see those, the, the, we see the interest returns to the loans and we, get, we return to something like regular order uh, in that regard. And so the HEROES Act was designed to empower sort of emergency response. Now, whether or not the HEROES Act is a good idea is something I think people ought to be talking more about because what it really does is says that in times of emergency, there's a different set of rules than in times of normal emergency, even about things that aren't directly tied to safety and security, but to the whole sort of the wholesale uh, rule of law in the United States. And that I find that a deeply disturbing concept. Why is it so disturbing to you? Uh, well, because um, we now have an emergency about every three weeks, uh, and as a result, we have um, the ability for folks to claim that everything is an emergency, and so none of the rules need to apply uh, because we have to respond to this urgent thing. And that runs counter to rule of law in some fundamental and important ways. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's this book, Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kersler. I don't know if you've ever read it, but he talks about how a state of an emergency can be extended and extended and extended basically uh, into infinity. Right. So, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, we have a we do not have a lot of history with emergency powers use in the United States. The history we do have is not particularly good. Um, we have more examples at the state level of long-run emergencies. Um, and so it becomes highly risky to sort of the norms of rule of law to allow for different standards. Now, things like curfews in the, in the aftermath of a hurricane, okay? They have short time limited. They tend to be very specific and very narrowly drawn, might make some sense, but the more you use them, the riskier it gets because they become never ending. Yeah. And I think, you know, in that case, if you were in that emergency, there was a hurricane, you would want to probably stay under a self-imposed kind of curfew. You know, it's that maybe, individuals maybe. would more likely decide the best thing for them. Yeah. Ultimately, I, I err on the side of allowing individuals to make their own own decisions, but at least there's an argument for those. I don't think the argument is right. And I would probably say still not a good idea to grant emergency powers, but mm -hmm. at least there's an argument there. For things like this, this is taking emergency powers and trying to stretch it to allow uh, elected officials, particularly uh, in the executive branch, to do whatever they want, um, even when they can't get it through legislatively. Yeah, and to have political favor as well, because then you might have certain uh, demographics want to vote for you. Well, politicians are going to politician. They always are going to you know, think about what's going to help keep them in power and get them more votes. So uh, public choice tells us we should just expect that from the outset. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I forget sometimes that that's my baseline and not everybody starts with the assumption that that's how politicians are going to behave. But yeah, it's exactly why. Let's talk a little bit about the 303 creative. What happened there? Yeah. So the 303 creative uh, case um, 
brought, brought a hypothetical to the Supreme Court, which is a rarity. The court very rarely takes cases that are speculative in nature. Um, here, what they did is they had a graphic designer based out of Colorado um, that would have been governed under the Colorado uh, sort of Equal Rights, Equal Act, Equal Rights Act, um, who wanted to expand her business uh, into making websites for weddings. And um, she, she asserted that in doing so, she would be she would have to design websites for any marriage, regardless of who was involved in it, um, because of the state law, and that that and therefore she was being compelled to speak things that were that ran counter to her own belief. Now, the case itself is has some interesting quirks and some controversy around it, partly because it does now look as though the case may have been contrived. Um, there is some evidence that in fact um, whether or not a request ever actually came to this designer from a, a homosexual couple to design a website, huh. it's now very much in doubt. But ultimately, uh, that doesn't actually matter to the, the Supreme Court at all. They're not triers of fact. They're triers of law. And they accepted the case on not just on the fact that there had been an actual problem, because she hadn't actually been prosecuted or anything under this, she had been. She was asking the court to enjoin the enforcement of the law uh, to prevent her from being being harmed by being punished for it, uh, and so by being the, punished for discrimination, basically. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so that little quirk is is interesting, but not actually all that important, particularly in how the court actually decided the case. Because you're right, it's been one of those cases that has been, if you look for very long, you see lots of people making the claim that this is sort of the emblematic of the, of the right turn of the court and all those sorts of things. Um, has the court moved more conservatively compared to the last one? Absolutely. They tend to be more originalist, more literalist in their interpretation, and much more skeptical of government. That being said, um, so I... I, I read the case. I have a vested interest in it, I, as I have a husband myself, and so I'm particularly interested in decisions and jurisprudence on this. But in reading the case itself, uh, the case was decided almost exclusively on speech grounds. And uh, the court accepted all the stipulations from below and, in fact, used those stipulations as the basis for their decision-making, which I think is important because it it ended up meaning that both the state of Colorado and the and 303 Creative agreed to a whole long list of things, including the fact that this was a case about speech, that the websites were expressive in nature. And so the question the court was actually being asked to address was, was there an overriding ability to regulate speech? And in fact, in this case, I would say compel speech because of the public accommodation needs um, of the Colorado statute. And the court went out of the went to great pains to not try to make a determination on the public accommodation question. Uh, they were rooted directly in the speech questions. And once the court um, went down the speech path, it was pretty clear that that compelled speech was never going to be allowable in this instance because uh, the court viewed it as pure expression or pure speech, meaning that it was in fact entitled to the greatest amount of protection possible under the law, meaning strict scrutiny, that they would have to have a compelling, legitimate government interest that they could not achieve in any other way to allow for them to apply it here. 
And once that was the standard the court settled on, and I think there was no way the court wasn't going to settle on that standard because of the stipulations, the things they had, both sides had agreed to, that this was in fact speech. Once we got to a place where this was a, a case about free speech, there wasn't going to be um, an easy way to get to a different outcome. Um, now, the dissents in this case are particularly interesting because they view, they view the question not as primarily a speech question, but as a public accommodation question. And the public accommodation law suggests that the government can intervene into ordinary commercial transactions to prevent discrimination. And in that instance, they're right, uh, the dissents are right about the law because the government does all those sorts of things. You can't simply refuse to sell based on a protected characteristic. You can't refuse to serve based on a, respect, uh, a protected characteristic. But here, because of the speech um, part of this, the court looked at it and said, well, this isn't an ordinary or a standard commercial transaction. Here we have expressive content and the creation of something new and in fact, pure speech. And that pure speech, uh, to require them to create the website for a, a marriage that they disagree with fundamentally, the court held would be com would compel them to speak against their own beliefs and interests and, and therefore was out of bounds to what the state could do. Now, what the court did not do and what we have not heard a lot about is they didn't uh, except a number of the amicis, briefs that are given in support that want to tell the court something about the case, that this was a religious freedom case. That's not mm -hmm. how the court decided it. Uh, and in fact, a number of the briefs that were submitted suggested that uh, free speech that was religious in nature should do deserve double, special, super extra protection under the law. And the court did not pick up that issue at all. And the court decided this on straight speech grounds, not on... The, what I'm going to characterize as fairly bizarre legal arguments that somehow there's double secret extra special protection. Yeah, oddly enough, that would be kind of like affirmative action. A bit. <laughs> you privilege one over the other. Right, right. Um, but the court didn't need to go, the, the court A didn't need to go there and B I don't think would have gone there mm -hmm. uh, because it was fundamentally a speech question. What is interesting in particular, and I think this is where the, the dissents miss this, um, in their response is the graphic designer um, affirmatively stated and the state stipulated as true her willingness to do services for all couples that did not require her to express support for same-sex marriage um, directly. So they want, if a gay couple came in and wanted to buy note cards, she was going to do that. If they wanted any of the variety of other services, it was fine. It was in the nature of the speech. Now, ADF did a the the defense the uh, the ADF group that put this together, the religious freedom group, uh, did a great job at actually constructing the case to get a narrow um, narrow ruling. Yes. Uh, and I think that's important because um, a broad a too broad of ruling would have caused some real problems. Um, a ruling that simply said state can compel would also have caused problems. And here we ended up with an interesting, not perfect, but a but a reasonable solution to my mind of how you can move forward. Um, I think folks on both sides that claim the sky either the sky is falling and this is the end of of uh, LGBTQ rights 
and those that claim that this is a victory and they have now slain the foe misunderstand the decision fundamentally. And ultimately, this decision, um, I think, is going to most properly be remembered primarily as a speech decision, not a discrimination decision. I think that might depend, Ryan, on, on who's looking at it, on who's remembering it, and, and on what kind of lens they view it through. So it looks like they didn't make a moral decision. They were saying, okay, we're not going to say that this is amoral or this is moral and didn't make it about religious freedom. They just said, okay, this is just a pure free speech thing. And this is the way that we're going to judge this matter. And so it ended up, do you think in your eyes, then it's kind of a victory for uh, this individual who runs the website, because now she does not have to be coerced to do something that goes against what she wants to say? Well, that's clearly the case uh, that for for her, for 303 Creative, this is this is a win on this. This is a win on the merits as well, because right. it overrules the Tenth Circuit. Um, I do think, however, it, it creates some, a new area, a new sort of space in which these decisions will will be addressed and mm. really has pulled some of this discussion back from being about questions of public accommodation and instead honed in on the question that surrounds speech. Now, in the short run, it's not going to be remembered as a speech decision. I think we get many years down the road, people will look at it and say that even in highly charged political controversial situations, the question that ended up ultimately before the court was one of speech as opposed to one, any of the other things. Uh, and I, in that respect, I actually think the decision will have some staying power. But that's also the, the, the speech is an extension as well of all the other things in a sense where like your, your speech reflects everything that's behind it. So your religious beliefs, your moral beliefs, your political beliefs. So it's kind of just like the, the tip of all of that. Yeah, I, I don't think I agree with that. Um, no? I think what I think that it, that those things all inform speech. But what the Constitution uh, protects in this instance is the right to hold those beliefs and to express them without mm. the interference of government. And so it's not that all those things then can be just borne out in society, but that this application of those things in the form of speech is protected. And that, I think, is what makes the decision potentially timeless. And do you think as well that it it would have been a, a totally different situation if this was not a private company, a, a, an individual, but it was a publicly funded institute, somebody who was making websites that had government funding? Do you think that the decision oh, would have been uh, made it was differently? Government funding, um, almost certainly, they would have there would have been a different outcome. Um, partly because uh, the set of tests would have been different. Um, and the question then would have been not merely one of pure speech, but also one of use of government resources. Government contracting law would almost certainly have been implicated. Um, but ultimately, we have the decision we did. I, I, w I wouldn't even attempt to speculate how a decision would go involving some of those other criteria, uh, partly because the clefts on the court would be, be quite a bit different than the ones that were existent in this case. So overall, some people might be saying, and as you said before, there's definitely a little bit more of a conservative flavor uh, yeah. in these rulings than maybe would have been in the past. Um, but do you think that uh, this indicates that the whole flavor of the law is just becoming more conservative or is it becoming more 
a constitutionalist or kind of how would you describe it? And, and do you think that it's a good thing? At this moment, the court is to, is the court is constituted is making uh, decisions under what we might call a textualist or a more originalist interpretation of the Constitution, um, and I tend to to be in favor of textualist understandings of constitutional protections. That's my own sort of view. Um, in general, uh, there are lots of things I I dislike about the court. The court made a number of what I think are incorrect decisions um, across the across this time. I think some of the reasoning in those decisions was particularly bad. Um, but overall, the court has moved in that direction. But the court is also always a reflection of its members. And not that many years ago, we were talking about a new permanent liberal Supreme Court. And now we're talking about a new permanent conservative Supreme Court. I'm going to predict that at some point in the future, we're going to be talking about a new something else permanent Supreme Court. Uh, and the court itself reflects in many ways with a lag, with a delay, um, where sort of American thinking is at any given moment. And so as we watch that, we're going to start to see some of the changes happen in the court. It doesn't always happen perfectly, but the court is not exempt from sort of the thinking of uh, either the American people or the politics of the situation. They do, however, tend to do moderately well, not perfectly, not even good uh, necessarily, at trying to make decisions based on the, the law itself and the merits of the case. And for all the complaints I might have about, about the court and about the change in makeup or any individual justices, qualifications or backgrounds, um, I don't see any of these decisions as being particularly sort of at odds with that vision of what the court is. So this kind of brings me to uh, perhaps my last question, which is more of a, a broad stroke question on these three cases. And that is uh, Andrew Breitbart. He said politics is downstream from culture. And some people yeah. say that uh, the law is downstream from culture. But then on the other hand, some people say culture is downstream from the law. What do you think? I, I think that uh, Andrew Breitbart uh, is very good at making short quips um, <laughs> that seem to encapsulate a lot of truth. But when you dig into them, uh, it turns out it's nothing, it's nothing is purely downstream from anything else. What we actually have is lots of interactions going on, and these things all affect each other continually. It's a nice, simple statement to say it's downstream from this, and then we have mm -hmm. a nice model of how the world works. turns out the world is way more complicated than most political pundits go on TV and claim. Instead, what we have is lots of these things affecting each other continually. And in fact, that's actually how we all live our lives. We don't live our lives um, based on pure progression of A to B to C to D to E to F, but instead we're dealing with decision-making on the margin where these things are all affecting each other all the time. It's not, the world is not an orderly place where X happens, then Y happens, then Z happens. Instead, all those things are happening simultaneously in interaction with each other. And that's very much how I view culture, the law, uh, and politics, that those things are all happening simultaneously. And to try to claim that one emerges from the other, I think is a, a little bit of a reductive fallacy. Um, yes, we can see some evidence of that, but we also see evidence of it running other directions. And the truth is somewhere in the great sort of mire and mix of all these things, which is what makes studying it so much fun.
Yeah, well said, Ryan. And you know, I tend to agree. So uh, I, I'm I'm happy that you said that. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. And I'm I'm wondering too, though, at the same time, if it also kind of varies by degree depending on where you're at as a country. So let's say if you are in times that are more authoritarian, uh, then you might have uh, the culture being affected a lot by the law like it's it's being decided at, at the higher level without much feedback from the public like you could sure. take covid restrictions as an example as an easy kind of a simple example um and and the culture is affected by the law but maybe in times where there is more freedom it tends to be more of a kind of exchange as you were just describing Maybe. I mean, even in the COVID scenarios, it was, we can easily trace what law did and then what we think happened in response. But there also was a lot of clamoring for government to do something, anything that didn't emerge mm -hmm. because lawmakers sat down and decided the public should do that, but instead the public had a demand. And so the interaction effects are, I think, really important. Now, do I think it varies depending on the, the, the specifics of time and place and circumstance, sort of what could be driving what in any given moment. Yeah, I think that's right. Thinking COVID, we did see experts um, from policymaking drive a whole bunch of what was going on. Um, you'll notice it lasted too long to most of our minds, but it didn't last forever despite their best attempts. And so that dynamic ebb and flow continued across. And ultimately the court we, we sometimes think that the court is making definitive, permanent decisions. Um, Roe versus Wade, all those things all show us that those decisions, as permanent as the court may claim them to be at any given moment, the dynamic nature of how things evolve leave open all of those things. And in fact, the structure of American politics and our institutions mean that beyond the constitutional provisions, and even those can be changed, very little is set in stone, and the past off the past cannot bind the future in any definitive way outside of the constitutional order. The system is designed to only allow for that to for that thing to bind. The rest is open to the decisions that are being made in the moment, and that's part of the genius of the American system. And the court, despite they're not wanting to admit it, operates the same way. They're more reluctant to make change, but they do make change um, in response to the competing pressures that exist. Would you like to give me some last thoughts on what we just discussed and wrap it up here? Yeah, uh, so uh, a couple of things. So I think the, one of the, the chief thing I would say is the court made a lot of decisions this term. Uh, I say a lot, they made it somewhere in the mid 60s. Uh, and those decisions um, were once again, despite the claims that, they're, that the court is more partisan than ever, we didn't see a great change in the number of split decisions. Most of the, the modal decision was still hev was heavily agreed upon by the justices. Um, lots of agreement on the decisions. We saw a, a large number of unanimous decisions again this term. So in that sense, many things have not changed about the court. What's changed is that on the margins, the split um, has shifted a bit to something that mm -hmm. looks more textualist and more more originalist than the previous courts had been. And that that's an interesting change, but it's not sort of the earth-shattering change that folks have sometimes claimed that now the court just marches in lockstep on, on the right, which is some of what I've been hearing on commentary shows for the last two weeks. Um, 
And as a result, the court continues to do to play the role that it that was laid out. It's making decisions, often tough decisions, decisions that people aren't going to like, and the court carries on. And I think in many ways, for me, that's the the thing I think that is most Im, sort of important, is that you can disagree with the court's decision. You can think they got it exactly wrong. And you may be right, but ultimately the courts continued to make decisions rooted in law rather than simply partisan decisions. And we've seen other countries where they go down the partisan route where they don't even give a pretext of law. Mm-hmm. That's not where we're at at all in the United States. We're still very much the same sort of court we have been, same sort of decision-making as always. Just this, this year, a different side of the political aisle hates the decisions than a few years ago. And I expect that's going to continue to be true well into the future in the United States. Yeah, I, I think it kind of makes sense in the way that um, as a court, you have to be neutral and to apply the rule of law. So you can't be partisan. And so either way, you're going to have one political party who's going to be unhappy with the outcome. Yeah, you have to try to be. You have to try yeah. to be neutral. I, much like my own research, I never claim that I achieve objectivity, but right. I try. Uh, and the court tries to look at the facts of the case and apply the law as they see it. And fundamentally, that's the task we've asked the court to do. We don't always have to agree with how they do it or what they do, but that's what we've asked them to do. And nothing about this term makes me believe anything fundamental has changed there. Well, Brian Yonk, thank you so much for being here with me today. And I hope to have you on again soon. All right. Thank you very much, Kate. Uh,